0: You may know that Native Americans that live in the Yellowstone area have been very, very supportive of the reintroduction. And over the years, they've had many blessing ceremonies, uh, initially to welcome the wolves back, and then usually on a yearly basis to bless the current population of wolves. And the first blessing ceremony as the wolves were arriving back in 1995. I, I know the Native people that were involved in that. One of them is named Scott. Frazier, and he was telling me once a few years ago that in that initial ceremony, after he had done singing a native song welcoming the wolves and doing several other things in their culture, he he concluded the ceremony by saying this statement. He said, "It is good to be part of putting something back rather than taking something." away and if you think about that quote it's so profound especially that it was spoken by a native american man i'll leave you to kind of think of the ramifications of those exact words
1: welcome to animalia where we cover all things conservation climate justice and sustainability Welcome back to the American War on Wolves, the first miniseries of its kind here on the Animalia Podcast. In episode one, we laid a foundation for better understanding wolves by exploring some of their behavioral traits, their sociology, their family dynamics, and the role in their ecosystem. In episode two, we jumped back to the mid-1800s and the onset of the U.S. extermination of wolves, the cooperation between agriculture and government, and systematically eliminating them, and the decades that followed the 1973 Endangered Species Act, which carried more bark than bite when it came to truly protecting the species. So here we are in episode three, reintroduction and recovery. Before we get in episode three, as always, please go support SaveOurWolves.org. This entire series is dedicated to supporting that program. It's put on by the Center for Biological Diversity, and it's fantastic. You can sign petitions that are going right to state and federal policymakers to protect wolves. Anybody can sign a petition. If you can make a donation, amazing as well. Every time someone listens to this podcast series, a $1 donation is being triggered by us. So you can also make donations just by sharing the podcast. So that's saveourwolves.org. Please check it out. In this episode, we're going to discuss both a successful reintroduction program, the Gray Wolves in Yellowstone and an unsuccessful effort, Mexican gray wolves, also known as lobos, in the southwest United States. Before we get into that, I want to make sure to mention the red wolf, an often forgotten wolf species here in the U.S. living on the East Coast, particularly in North Carolina and surrounding areas. While we're not going to touch too much on red wolves in this podcast series, it's worth noting that they've been a victim of the same vicious cycle of habitat loss and agricultural conflict, albeit in a much denser human populated area. By 1980, red wolves were declared extinct in the wild. Their reintroduction efforts started in the late 80s, and through valiant effort from conservationists, they started a rebound between 1990 and 2010, to the tune of a peak population of 130 in North Carolina in 2011. Sadly since, those efforts have been foiled. As of today, there may be just 10 left in the wild. This is even more frustrating when seeing their numbers increasing in captive zoos. Landowner conflict has been the culprit. And even though there is not consistent threat posed based on data, landowners simply don't want to be told they have to allow these animals on their property. This is a point we're going to touch on in this episode when we talk to Michael Robinson about the failed reintroduction efforts of the lobo. Any decree by the government telling you what you can or cannot hunt, for example, or do with your land overall is seen as a violation of rights in this country. We often abuse the notion of freedom in this country to rationalize anything we see fit to do, regardless of how it impacts anyone else. We see that in gross justifications of bigotry and other forms of oppressive behavior, and we see it with wolves as well. Let's get in to the third episode on reintroduction and recovery. It took a long time to even think about reintroduction. Well past the point, efforts should have been ignited. As we learned in episode two, between the mid-19th century and the end of the 20th century, we really only hunted wolves down in the name of progress and economic demand. If you're thinking, hey, well, why didn't it start in earnest in 1973 with the passage of the Endangered Species Act? The gray wolf was added to that list in 1974. Well, that's a logical thought. However, it took years of pressure and litigation against the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, the very agency on paper tasked with upholding the Endangered Species Act, to get there. The Center
2: for Biological Diversity led a coalition of organizations that sued the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the Defense Department over their refusal to recover Mexican gray wolves, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, has hasn't had jurisdiction under the Endangered Species Act, the Defense Department, because the only area that was under consideration at the time was White Sands Missile Range, which is a U.S. Army installation. And the Defense Department had, uh, had working closely with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service had agreed not to release wolves there. They were, you know, essentially Fish and Wildlife Service was taking the lead on behalf of the livestock industry. They had exterminated the Mexican wolf on behalf of the livestock industry. They hadn't quite managed to finish the job. Seven animals had survived, ultimately, and were part of the captive breeding program when, you know, when the Endangered Species Act halted the extermination program. But they, you know, they were doing what they could to stop the reintroduction. So Center for Biological Diversity, we were, at the time, we were an ad hoc group called the Wolf Action Group with a nice acronym WAG. Uh, we've, we we What year was like, this,
1: Michael? Sorry, I just didn't get in the
2: approximately beginning. Approximately 1991. I'd have okay. to check... Okay. Specifically, and I'm sorry. That's okay. I'm remembering off the top of my head. Uh, but we filed a lawsuit, and it was settled in the mid-1990s. Again, I can check the dates, but I didn't happen to have it. Don't happen to have it in front of me. With an agreement that the Fish and Wildlife Service would begin the planning for a reintroduction. They reversed course. They had officially came out against reintroduction.
1: That's Michael Robinson, who you heard from in episode two, author of Predatory Bureaucracy.
2: They had uh, The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service had... Con- had officially stated that there would not be a reintroduction of Mexican wolves they you know they and uh, thanks to the lawsuit they agreed that they would then they managed to end by a timeline then they they blew through that timeline they were supposed to get the wolves on the ground in 1997 but they didn't then we sent them another letter warning that they were violating the the settlement agreement and and they did it in 1998 but then they said they set up rules to to burden the program, and, and more specifically, to make
1: it just much harder for the wolves to survive. We're going to start with the situation for Mexican gray wolves in the southwest United States, a species that was officially listed on the U.S. Endangered List in 1976. It's a subspecies of the larger gray wolf species and remained extinct in the wild until 1998. Their reintroduction effort has not gone so well. Later in this episode, we'll touch on a recovery program that has gone well in form a Yellowstone. Getting back to the Mexican greys. To set the stage a bit, reintroduction is anything but simple. For one, you need the wolves themselves to get acclimated into the wild in relatively short order. For efforts in the U.S. Southwest, this came from wolves being born in captivity, meaning they did not have the natural teachings in the wild from adult members of the pack from day one. The hardest and most important challenge is getting a newly reintroduced pack to breed. That's why you see celebratory news articles of when this successfully happens, such as recently in 2021 here in Colorado. Weaning them off supplemented food and hunting the right ungulate species, not livestock, is another challenge, especially in places where there's livestock conflict, such as the Hia National Forest and surrounding areas where the Mexican Grey Recovery Program has been focused. Now, that's a unique challenge compared to, say, Yellowstone, where there's no ranching or farming of any kind as a protected national park. After 7 years of legal battles and interruptions, seven Mexican gray wolves were finally released into the wild in 1998. But this did not come without a steep set of challenges and hurdles.
2: They got wolves on the ground in 1998. The population began to to increase at rough and roughly the, the same demo, the same trajectory that they had projected. In 2001, there was a they in the reintroduction rule, the 1998 reintroduction rule They specified they were going to have a three-year review, three years into the reintroduction, and a five-year review. For the three-year review, they recruited five, well, they they went to the Conservation Breeding Specialist Group of the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. And they selected or recruited five independent scientists, non-governmental scientists, including expert in, in wolves, in recovery of endangered species, in statistical analysis, and demographics and these five people did a deep dive into the into it and they came up with an 87 page re- report which was the three-year review of the of the Mexican wolf program in which they said things are starting out okay, but here's some warning signs here and, and they said we project that in the future there will be shortfalls in the uh, number of wolves if you don't address these 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 problems that we that we're anticipating. And they named the problems. I don't know if you want how much detail you want me to go into about that. You can just name the, it,
1: name the name, name a couple. The one that maybe the ones that okay, stick out. Okay, well
2: I'll, I'll give you I'll give you three, which were really the the primary ones. Uh, the the 1998 reintroduction area, it identified a 4.4 million acre area as the Blue Range Wolf Recovery Area, of which 1.1 million acres. So one quarter of it is in the, is in Arizona in the Apache National Forest and 3.3 million acres is in New Mexico in the Gila National Forest, which are contiguous national forests. It identified a small portion of that area in Arizona, that 1.1 million acres, where the wolves could actually be released from captivity, and they were to be allowed to roam throughout the whole area. But one of the problems the the scientists identified right off the bat is this area where they can be released was going to become saturated with resident territorial wolves, And there wouldn't, and and there'd be conflicts between them and wolves that might be released into the future. And that would constrain additional releases and could lead to genetic problems. Because remember, looming behind all of this is the fact that only seven wolves survived the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service's tender treatment from past decades. Seven of the whole subspecies. And and genetics was always, sorry, go ahead.
1: Real quick on that point, is it correct that all of the wolves today in New Mexico and Arizona our ancestors of those seven?
2: Yes. Yeah. Okay. So Fish and Wildlife Service con- constrained where the wolves could be released, and the scientists pointed out that that would constrain releases once the territorial wolves became established in that area. That's exactly what happened, I believe it was in 2004. I'd have to check that. Might have It might have been, two th- been 2002 or 2003. So shortly after they made this prediction, nine wolves were of a, a pack were, were released in that small area of the Apache National Forest, but it was right on top of a, a pack that was already there, and the pack that was already there attacked them. The nine wolves split apart. One by one, they ended up dead, or a handful were lucky enough, I can't remember how many, it was one or two, ended up in captivity alive, but, like, some got hit by they, – they weren't a, a family anymore. They were individual animals who had never been in the wild roaming around trying to figure out what the hell had happened after they were attacked by the territorial wolves. One got – at least one, maybe two got hit by cars. It was just a disaster. The alpha male of the pack that was released had bite marks on his rear end, canid bite marks on his rear end. But he died from having been bitten by a rattlesnake on his snout. And his throat constricting so much on his radio collar that the radio collar strangled him. So, piecing things together, he's running away from these wolves that were there already, runs right into a rattlesnake, and that's what eventually kills him, along with the radio collar. So, so this, anyway, that's just one. I know it's a rabbit hole digression, but this, there's yeah. been every one of these stories is a, is a tragedy. Every single one of these stories with Mexican wolves, because what, what we're dealing <clears throat> with, just give you an, an overview of 24 years into it is we're dealing with a wolf control program that is masquerading as an, as a endangered species recovery program.
1: It's helpful to paint a picture of the Hia National Forest and the unique circumstances that it presents. The land in the Southwest is much drier. This means vegetation is not as dense. And because there's so much open livestock grazing in the area, well, cows quite literally are competing for the same limited vegetation as wild ungulate species like deer and elk.
2: There's, many thousands of cattle on the Gila national forest Hmm. year round, because it's relatively low elevation. I could, I don't know how much you'd see through the zoom, but you know, it's particularly in this era of obviously the modern global warming era, we're getting very little snow on the ground, but even beforehand, there was year round grazing. So there's, you know, there's just a lot of cows doing their, they have transformed the landscape in very significant ways they're certainly competing with the, number, with the elk that are out there. I mean, if you got, say, to have one, one series of canyons and mesas in the, you know, just to, to sort of create an example out of whole cloth, you know, of, a, of say 7,000 acres and there's 185 cows and calves, they, they measure them as cow-calf pairs that are allowed in this one grazing allotment, and they're there, you know, all year. Well, for one thing, they're going to strip the vegetation from the the stream sides, mm-hmm. and they're going to, you know, they're d- disproportionately going to have impact there. But they'll also impact impact the uplands most likely, and the vegetation that would either, that that they directly consume, but also the vegetation that just gets damaged by floods from the erosion that's caused oh, by the water there. Now that's all vegetation that could feed animals like elk and other animals that that wolves could prey on. So you have you have the livestock there, but you also have the the direct and indirect impact of the livestock on the natural prey of the of the wolves. And then you have a whole host of other factors in terms of how those livestock are managed that are recipes for conflict in which the wolves. Have, have been paying a terrible price for.
1: And because prey species are not as dense, wolves require larger ranges in order to hunt. Larger ranges in areas that are wrought with overgrazing is a bad recipe for wolf-livestock conflict.
2: There, there is one area that's significant that is a large part of the Gila wilderness and a large part of the Aldo Leopold wilderness that is closed to grazing, but that's not... You know, but there's other smaller areas that are also closed to grazing. But I mean, essentially, it's not that wolves are migratory. They're not necessarily migratory. They do have large home ranges, mm-hmm. particularly in the southwest, because because we have less water here, less rain, less snow mm-hmm. than, for example, in, in the northern Rocky Mountains, you have a lower density of animals like deer and elk. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a lot of deer and elk. But per acre, there's less than there would be in at least during the summer months in places like Yellowstone National Park in, you know, in, in any particular area. And so you have to have larger home. Ra- the wolves have to have larger home ranges. That makes sense. To be able to eat the same number of deer because the deer or elk, because those animals are more scattered about. And to have sufficient numbers of wolves for a viable population, which is not, we do not have a viable population now for many reasons, not, not just demographic, not just the number of wolves, but just if you just take the number of wolves that would represent a viable population, you can't, there's, there's you know, it's, it's well beyond the areas, the relatively small areas that don't have livestock on them. Hmm. You know, those those areas can support very few among the wolves that are both on the landscape now and or that are needed ultimately for recovery.
1: There are a ton of elements working against wolves in the southwest U.S., despite what might appear publicly to be valiant efforts to reintroduce them. And that's the rub here. Simply putting a few wolves back into the wild is barely step one. Yet in doing my research, that seems like the only box the Fish and Wildlife Service needed to check to appear to be upholding their duties and protecting Mexican gray wolves. All the other boxes went unchecked, making it nearly impossible for wolves to thrive and in most cases even survive.
2: Now another one of the, the, the decisions that was made in the 1998 reintroduction rule was this was unlike any other endangered species recovery program in the United States except for a reintroduction that had taken place decades earlier with endangered uh, sea otters. And it had been a disaster for them, but this provision that they, and it had been rescinded, but they decided to put it in place for the Mexican wolf. The wolves had an invisible line around them in this recovery area, this 4.4 million acre recovery area. Not only invisible, an odorless line that was supposed to constrain them. By regulation, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service pledged to remove any wolf from the wild that established a territory wholly outside of the Blue Range wolf recovery area or any adjoining Indian reservation that specifically requested the presence of the wolves or private land adjoining the recovery area that specifically requested the presence of the wolves. So for example, when wolves went from the Gila National Forest to the Cibola National Forest, they had to be removed from the wild, which meant the death of a pup, at least one pup, that was too young to take care of itself when its parents were removed not because there was any problem but because they were had crossed over this odorless line and that the examples are go on and on and on so that was set up to constrain wolf recovery on behalf of the livestock industry and the scientists recommended that that wolves be allowed to roam at will like other wildlife and only management actions be taken to address them when there's a specific reason to not because of their of a random random location they may be in.
1: I mean, they almost, also recommended... Sorry, no, go, go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead. Sorry.
2: But they also recommended that be done immediately. And they made another recommendation, which was that livestock owners be required to take responsibility for cleaning up the carcasses of domestic animals that died of non-wolf causes, whether it's from lightning or disease or birthing problems, before wolves scavenge on those animals and are drawn into conflict situations with live domestic mm-hmm. animals, and that would have mirrored a provision that had been placed to protect the wolves from conflicts that had been that uh, Fish and Wildlife Service had instituted in the northern Rocky Mountains three years earlier, in three years before the Mexican wolf reintroduction in the 1995 reintroduction to the Yellowstone National Park in central Idaho of northern gray wolves. Those protections were not in place for Mexican wolves, and the scientists recommended they be put in. Fish and Wildlife Service ignored the scientists' recommendations, even after stating that they were going to uh, take them into account. They held a three-day workshop, a so-called stakeholders workshop, in which people were supposed to come to consensus. And remarkably, there was there wasn't consensus. It was largely livestock owners, but also pro-wolf citizens. But a majority of people recommended that the, the same provisions that I just outlined that the scientists had recommended, allowing wolves to be released, allowing Fish and Wildlife Service to release wolves into the Gila National Forest, removing the, the restrictions on their movements and, and protecting them from scavenging on livestock carcasses and, and the consequences that often arose from that. Fish and Wildlife Service didn't act. For a while, they, uh, they said, well, we're about to do it, but there was always some reason why they couldn't. In 2004, the Center for Biological Diversity, filed a petition, a rulemaking petition, to enact those three provisions in in the uh, reintroduction management rule. And uh, by that time, there were already signs of trouble because my congressman at the time, the late Joe Skeen, who was a sheep rancher using extensive tracts of public lands here in southern New Mexico, and also the chairman alternately, of the Interior Appropriations Committee in Congress and the Interior Agriculture Committee in Congress, and occasionally minority leader, depending on whether the Democrats were in charge or Republicans like himself. But he inserted a provision in an appropriations bill requiring a review of the scientists' review. And that led to further delay in reforms. And as it happened, the Arizona Game and Fish Department Took the lead in, in writing the review of the review that was then required by, by, by law, by federal law. And, and their answer was this program should be taken over by us. They actually specific, they they specifically affirmed the biological findings. They didn't find any problems with that, but they said this program shouldn't be a federal program. This should be a state program. We should take it over. And uh, with the help of Congressman scheme, they did and the Fish and Wildlife Service was forced to sign a memorandum of understanding with Arizona Game and Fish that handed over authority essentially for all essential decisions, most importantly which wolves would live and which wolves would die in uh, 2004, and then the population crashed. Whereas it had been on an upward trajectory, it started going down, and the reforms the scientists recommended didn't take place, and it went down for five years, until the Center for Biological Diversity and our allies, we had filed we filed suit and in 2009, we came to a settlement agreement with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service after they'd lost a critical motion, a, a rule, ruling on what, what evidence was admissible and how it would be interpreted. They lost that. They'd realized they were gonna lose the lawsuit and they agreed in a settlement agreement with us no longer to be dictated to by the Arizona Game and Fish Department as to which wolves would live and which wolves would die. Arizona Game and Fish was commanding wolves in New Mexico be killed, for example. This is one random, you know, little tidbit into it. So that, so in 2000, after 2009, Fish and Wildlife Service for a few years stopped shooting wolves and trapping them out. But they had also, in response to Arizona Game and Fish Department's pressure and the livestock industry pressure, they'd stopped releasing wolves from the wild. And They had a variety of reasons for stopping it. The first was the only one that was honest. That was in, I think, 2004. They said that they were going to, it was right after Congressman Skeen's successor, the former Congressman Steve Pierce, convened, insisted that Fish and Wildlife Service high officials meet with the livestock industry and hear their complaints. And that's what happened. They held two closed-door meetings In which apparently they were screamed at and berated and threatened, and they decided to have a moratorium on wolf releases to the wild immediately following that.
1: You could look at all of this and make any one of a number of misleading cases on why wolves should not be reintroduced. And when reintroduction is done poorly, that seems to be the greatest heartbreak of it all. Well, that just gives the anti-wolf community more ammunition to stand against future efforts for recovery.
2: They started coming up with other reasons why wolves couldn't be released from captivity. One year it was because there was a forest fire. Well, every year there's forest fires. They could have just put the wolves somewhere where there wasn't a forest fire, but they didn't. Another year it's because they said there's uncollared, I know radio color, uncollared wolves already in the area we want to release them. So we can't, they had actually already gotten like front page news throughout the Southwest of beautiful pictures of wolves. We're going to release these animals to the wild. They're going to help with the genetics. But then after they got the front page headlines, they decided not to release the wolves. They had them in in pens, in a pen, in the Apache National Forest. But then they put them back in a crate and drove them to somewhere in captivity where they spent the rest of their lives in captivity. But that didn't make the front page news at all. And the reason was supposedly there were uncolored wolves that, that were in the same area. And they might be act territorial to the ones being released. They, didn't have any, they never actually came up with proof or evidence that there were these uncolored wolves. But they just asserted it. And, they, and again, we're talking about over 4 million acres of national forest, the vast mm-hmm. majority of which at the time and still today do not have wolves, territorial wolves in them. But the area where they wanted to release them, they couldn't. Another time, it was because they needed better communication with the Arizona Game and Fish Department. On, on it. So they just canceled the release. Each time they put out like press releases, we're going to release these wolves. And then something came up and eventually they just decided not, they like, they just stopped coming, they stopped planning it and putting out press releases.
1: The issue surrounding genetic diversity is an important one to call out. As you heard from Michael, this has been a big problem with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service's strategy in the Southwest by introducing a single pack of wolves into a tightly defined range you are capping their ability to spread out the gene pool and diversify. This, in turn, makes wolves more susceptible to disease, or more likely to stick with preferring slower-moving livestock if they're not mixing with other wolves who have moved on to more natural prey. Which brings us to the U.S.-Mexican border. Believe it or not, the border issue plays a huge role for wolves as well. If we were actually to put up a wall full-on across the entire border, this would be a serious problem for the survival of lobos.
2: In 2007, a peer-reviewed study came out that showed an association between the level of inbreeding and close relatedness of parent wolves and the fates of their their pups. And what it showed was that if two wolves are more closely related, if, if they're essentially a more inbred pair, then there were going to be smaller or fewer wolves in a litter, smaller numbers born, and among those that are born, fewer that survive to adulthood. And it's essentially a one-way ratchet to extinction. Now, Fish and Wildlife Service's way that they have responded to this is, first of all, they just, they re-ran the numbers. Well, actually, that's the second step. The first thing they did and they're continuing to do, is they feed the vast majority of the wolf pairs in the wild, with the, the wolf pairs that have pups. These animals, for the most part, are not out there hunting elk. They're waiting for the truck to drive up, even though they're in the wild. And the reason they do that, well, there's the, the ostensible reason is to prevent conflicts with livestock. Because the Fish and Wildlife Service wants to prioritize the presence of livestock, and not require any prevent- it does not require any and, and refuses to require any preventative measures to protect livestock. So they, the, their, their response is, we'll just feed the wolves, and they, maybe they won't be hungry enough to feed on the animals that are ubiquitous in so many of these areas and displacing the native elk. But the other thing in terms of the genetics that the feeding does is that if you think about it, any, any mammal that is well-fed is likely to have a uh, higher reproductive success than an than a, a mammal that's not well fed. Mm-hmm. And by f- keeping the the wolves very well fed, the the female wolves, they uh, they're essentially they've got a, a countervailing force, a counteracting force to that which is reducing the fertility of the animals. They're increasing the fertility. and but what they're not doing is addressing the underlying problems. That are causing, you know, pups not to not to survive. Te- it's a temporary fix, even as the inbreeding is worsening over the long term. The last couple of years, they've made it get slightly better, not me- barely measurably. So we're talking about a <coughs> fraction of a percent, but over the long term, it's been worsening. And so what we have you have is a, is no longer a population where the where the Average number of of pups is going down, and surviving pups is going down, but rather one where in some cases there's quite a lot of pups that are born and and survive. But with each generation, without really fixing the the genetic problems, the recessive alleles that can cause long term problems on a whole bunch of on. probably immeasurable numbers of, of physiological traits and attributes are allowed to survive. They're not getting culled from the population and they're not getting diversified with, with others to any to any measurable degree. And so the, the problems actually are probably worsening even as they're being masked by the feeding program.
1: I, I've read <clears throat> in a couple of places that one of the things that would contribute positively to genetic diversity would be allowing border-crossing between us and mexico and so i'm wondering if how much that would impact in a positive way and then my follow-up question to that is is something like the border wall you know in its and it's like full vision problematic to that or is it not as consequential as i might be thinking it is
2: well i'll answer your last question last it's it's one of the most damaging projects that's ever taken place in north america and it's incredibly consequential for any animal that needs you know Needs to move over long, long distances, and particularly an endangered species that's only represented in the wild in two populations. They do need to be able to connect. The border wall is entirely permit You know, the new border wall segments that have ex- extended you know, over vast areas of Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas and California are impermeable to all but the tiniest wildlife, you know, animals like a mouse or something. They are impermeable to wolves. Thankfully, they do not extend over the whole border. And in January, a Mexican wolf, uh, a male pup from Mexico, the wolves, I should say, were were reintroduced in Mexico in 2011. They've been there 10 years. Uh, A male pup across the border in the boot heel of New Mexico in a mountain range called the Sierra San Luis traveled northward, eventually traveled west, went I don't know how many dozens of miles, maybe even close to 100 miles in the United States and then was killed on Interstate 10 in Arizona. So, but, you know, I mean, that, that that's obviously the reality of having an interstate out there, and one that is not particularly wildlife friendly. But essentially, when you're talking about connectivity and about the ability of an- long-range animals, such as wolves, to go back and forth between two, two populations, it's a numbers game. Because, you know, under whether, whether you spend a lot of, of resources to try and make the you know, the landscape is safe as possible for wolves, you know, wildlife crossings, for example, or whether you do nothing, some some animals are going to make it and some aren't. So, so the key is to make it as friendly as wildlife friendly as possible and permeable as possible. And for that, the, the border wall really that has been constructed is terribly damaging and should be should be knocked down, at least in the key stretches that block wolves and, and jaguars and other endangered species. But I think the whole thing is an atrocity. But, you know, there's there's issues around the, you know, the interstate, obviously. And there's issues in that the you know, Fish and Wildlife Service is busy trying to stop wolves from going back and forth. Five years ago, I believe it was, a female wolf came up from, from Mexico into Arizona. And the Fish and Wildlife Service captured her and, has kept, as far as I know, has kept her in, in, in captivity uh, for the last five years, despite a kid's campaign to, to free her. So... We need more robust, a much more robust population, a larger and more protected population in Arizona and New Mexico, so that animals, among other places, are, are heading southward. And those that are lucky enough can cross the border and breed in, in you know in the population in Mexico. And we need you know as much support as we can give Mexican authorities as they seek to build up a population there. And, and we need to, you know, obviously protect. Protect the animals in every way possible.
1: The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has been scrambling in the last 10 years to get this all figured out. From 1998 to 2013, the success rate for wild Mexican gray wolves was an abysmal 21%. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service flat out has failed to do their job. And if we're being honest, there's just no way for them to properly do so in reintroducing Mexican grays if they continue to also prioritize the needs of big agriculture and ranching. There are ways for these two worlds, big ag and wolves, to coexist in peace, but it will require farmers and ranchers to adapt practices and policies they simply don't want to do. Which brings us back to a point we made up top, that even if it doesn't materially impact them, many ranchers and farmers reject wolf protection protocols and non-lethal conflict mitigation measures on the grounds of freedom, that the government should not be telling them what to do or how to govern their land.
2: Well, you've heard of the Bundy case in when was it 2014 where in Nevada that's been the last 10 years where a rancher who had been trespass grazing his cattle for 20 something years and had ignored numerous court orders to mm-hmm. remove his cattle from the public lands and asserted that he owned the lands just called in a militia and not forced the government, you know, at the, at the, at gunpoint forced the government to stop those cattle are still out there in the militia. Two militia members went on to shoot to death two Nevada, Las Vegas, oh, wow. Nevada police officers. So there's an example from the last 10 years. Previous to that, there's other examples involving violence, threats of violence, involving claims of the livestock industry. They don't reckon, you, you will never hear a, anyone from the livestock industry out West refer to the public lands. Yeah. Public lands don't hear that phrase they'll refer to them as federal lands because they don't they don't actually acknowledge that they're owned by the public and so these these this is a wide it's a cult widespread cult attitude among the livestock industry of the west and so despite the supreme court ruling that they don't have any rights on the public lands any more than anyone else does they have privileges like we all do so yes this is something that's been recurring since 1907 standoffs in which ranchers assert that they're, they own the public land. It's still happening. And generally, you know, they, these things end in various ways. But it's very, very hard to get trespass livestock off the, nas- off the national forest.
1: And so either this cultural mindset is rooted out or the Fish and Wildlife Service and state governments decide to actually prioritize wolves and wildlife in the name of recovery, not management it's hard to see anything changing in the short term for Mexican greys. Their recovery efforts will remain one step forward, two steps back. Okay, when we come back after the break, we're gonna discuss the Yellowstone reintroduction program, why it's been successful and what we can learn from it. But just before that, let's spend 10 minutes or so discussing how recovery targets are set. One of the many questions facing state and federal policymakers around reintroduction recovery is aligning on the right target. I have to admit, I was a bit confused on why all of these different states set targets based on the number of wolves rather than the impact they're having on the ecosystem. It seems that both conservationists and wolf opponents think in terms of numbers, albeit much different ones. A few of our guests share their perspective on this. Now, you're going to hear from Amarok Weiss quite a bit in our fourth and final episode. But by way of introduction, Amarok works with the Center for Biological Diversity. She has a fascinating background as both a biologist and a lawyer, giving her a uniquely keen ability to fight for wolves on both scientific and legal grounds. I sort of liken her to Wolf 42, the alpha female we learned about in Yellowstone in episode one, and that was a comparison she was all too humble to accept.
3: So for wolf reintroduction, primarily um, as a starting point, one needs to do the historical research to understand if wolves lived in that region previously, and we already know that any place that there is forest and prey, there were probably wolves. But that research has to be done to begin with, and to make sure that there's still a good prey base existing. Because don't forget, we didn't just wipe out wolves in this country, we also wiped elk and deer and bison, and actually had to reintroduce them in places. Thank goodness those reintroduction efforts have gone well because we have abundant deer and elk, and in some places, even bison. So there's a lot of prey for wolves. What else is necessary is to take a look at, do wolves have what scientists call uh, core protected refugia? That is, in the place that you are restoring them to, do they have some pretty highly protected places where if they wander out of there, yes, maybe they will get killed by humans, either people who shoot them or trap them or kill them with, by hitting them with their car. But if they stay within that core protected area, do they still have some good habitat there where they can be wolves and, and not have to worry about that impact from humans? So that's an important aspect. Another important aspect is to identify you know, what What laws are in place where the wolves are going to be reintroduced to keep them protected? Because if you were to transplant wolves to someplace where they had no protections, that would be a failed reintroduction right from the start. Normally you're not going to be introducing 2,000 wolves all at once. You're gonna be starting a handful of wolves and they need the protections in order to increase their population and expand their territory. So for instance, in Yellowstone, over a two-year period, 31 wolves were introduced. And in Idaho, over a two-year period, 35 wolves were introduced. So these are not a large number of animals. In the Southwest in 1998, when the Mexican Grey Wolf Reintroduction Program started, they introduced 11 animals. So again, these are very small. That's a really good example of where, even though there were laws to protect them, there were outlaws killing them because within the first year or so i think nine of those 11 wolves have been illegally killed so protection is important but enforcement of those protective laws is also really important one of the key pieces to restoring wolves to places they used to live is public education and probably every state agency wolf plan i've read not even just for reintroduction, but just for having wolves return naturally on their own by dispersing in. They all emphasize public education. Unfortunately, most of them rarely have funding to do the sufficient education that's necessary and the education I'm talking about is really education that has to be aimed at overcoming the 400 years. misinformation we've had about wolves in this country that still permeates the human psyche in this country there's a lot of work that has to be done to inform people about what wolves really are all about that they really don't want to have anything to do with humans that they're really not killing machines that they're only successful hunting about five to ten percent of the time that they hunt and that they only rarely have conflicts with livestock you know all of these things are huge education gaps that need to be a part of a successful reintroduction another thing that's really really needed is to establish um, criteria like benchmarks to meet that that fully embrace the fact that what you want is to have wolves back at numbers where they can fulfill their ecological role So, for instance, in the Northern Rockies, when that reintroduction was done, the idea was to have 10 breeding pairs in each of the three states, or a total of 300 breeding pairs. And that's a tiny drop in the bucket compared to what that whole region could actually support. Right now, there's probably close to 2,000 wolves in the Northern Rockies. And unfortunately, by setting that benchmark of only 300 wolves overall, that has led people who are wolf opponents to claim that the goalposts have been switched and that the agencies are allowing wolves to populate it, 10 times the number they said they would allow them to. But the agency never said from the beginning that they were going to cap the population at 300 but humans are funny. We, we latch onto numbers and then we decide that those lower thresholds or those mean ceilings when that isn't even what was said. But by setting those goals so low, it allowed the public who hates wolves to say, we don't want any more wolves than 300 wolves in that area. We actually don't even want 300 wolves there, but we're not going to live with any more than that. So setting benchmarks that that really acknowledge that you have to have wolves back in robust numbers.
1: Many anti-wolf advocates say that if recovery programs are too successful, wolves will be overabundant and cause problems for prey and livestock populations. Even though there is no scientific data to back the long-term damage to wild prey populations, and while they absolutely can and will kill livestock if given the chance, there are plenty of available non-lethal methods of mitigation not being used in most cases. John Vucevich made a great point in our chat that we really shouldn't care about the total number of wolves, but rather what impact, if any, they're having and to then deal with those things accordingly. One concern
4: that wildlife managers have and certain members of the general public is that an animal population is sometimes overabundant that's the phrase that's sometimes used overabundant and that word is used sometimes with wolf populations and it's sometimes used with ungulate populations so that would be like deer elk moose and so forth now overabundant is not a scientific term it's it's a it's a judgment and so it has to be overabundant in what regard or overabundant f- to what end or Overabundant why, and and so and and to, to follow up on that, usually what it means is, well, this animal has become abundant enough that they are now causing a problem for us. And you say, oh, okay, well, what's what's the problem? And then you can start to say whatever the problem is. So, so when we do this, what we do is we start to separate the the the, the scientific objective dynamics of the population from hey. I, we as a group of humans have a concern because, because those are separate things. And so if, if we separate those two things, one of the things is that in in nature, there isn't really too, too much with only some examples, some exceptions of animals being quote unquote overpopulated. They're just overpopulated because they're doing something that we don't like and or don't want. So even when a deer population is quote unquote overpopulated, the deer population is probably just fine it's that we have decided, for better or for worse, that that number of deer is having an impact on the vegetation that we think is not right. And we say, okay, well, so there's too many of them in that regard. And so what should we do about it? You know, we should try to reduce their abundance or or, or let it be or whatever. But but the, the the ungulate population will decline if they run out of food. That is, it's, it's essentially a law of Physics, or if you like a law of biology, if there's not enough food, the population will come down. That's true for deer and it's true for for predator populations as well. So when we say or when some people say that a predator population is overabundant, well, they're not overabundant to have gotten to that abundance. There's still, you know, there's not so many of them that they can't uh, have gotten to that number, that abundance. And so one has to say, okay, well, yeah, I see what you're saying. So the predator population is overabundant because, and you have to say what problem they're causing. And, and then, okay, well, predators can cause a variety of problems. And here is probably useful to start distinguishing them. So, so one challenge that they can represent is, is, is that when there are lots of predators, sometimes there is an increase in the number of livestock that are killed. That's a particular kind of problem, and we'll talk, we can talk about how to solve that problem in, in a moment. In some cases, a person might say, well, we think there are too many predators, and we think that's having an adverse or negative impact on the prey population. Well, that's overabundant for a different kind of a reason, and we might respond to it differently. And then some people, whether they're making good judgments or not is a separate issue, but nevertheless, some people think, well, there's too many predators, and I think that's a human safety issue. Well, that's yet again a different kind of problem. And here's what I'm getting at is, is that wildlife management really should be about solving problems. It shouldn't be an obsession over controlling the number of animals in a population. That's just kind of a perverse obsession to say there's this number and that's too many. And instead, what should be said is what problem is being caused and how can we solve it if it even merits solving? And, uh, and on that regard... What I would say, and now the whole question shifts. We don't have to talk about whether wolves self-regulate or not. We have to talk about, are there a number of wolves that's causing a problem or not? And then that gets us into a a different part of the conversation, which is, again, the, the three most common problems that some people raise about
1: living in, near, and around wolves. Michael Robinson doesn't see numbers and quotas as the issue. They are helpful benchmarks and measuring sticks. The key is rather setting them correctly.
2: It's hard. I mean, you know... Game agencies, state game agencies, they have numbers of animals that, that they want killed by hunters. They have certain numbers of licenses they issue for this animal or that animal. I mean, the numbers in themselves, you know. I don't see numbers as the problem. Although what the way you phrase John's comments, you know, sounds very sensible. But I guess again, if you know, like there's the 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 recovery plan for the Mexican wolf. Calls for what is it? 320. I could have that number wrong. I have to check. 320 wolves in the United States, and I think 200 in Mexico, as one of a couple of different criteria, or one set of you know the demographic, you know, facet of the criteria for Rick for when wolves would take be taken off the endangered species list. We think those numbers are the wrong numbers, but we don't. We're not against using numbers hmm. to set recovery recovery criteria.
1: All right. Well, speaking of numbers, now let's get into what happened at Yellowstone and something we can feel good about. In 1995, eight wolves boarded a truck in Alberta, Canada, and set off for Yellowstone National Park. Little did they know that they would become the shining light of wolf recovery, the case study that keeps on giving in terms of how much value wild wolves can add to an ecosystem and to an economy, as we'll soon learn. I like to think of those eight wolves knew something about the importance of their journey, maybe just without any direct knowledge of the context or the target outcome. But I'm romanticizing there. They would be the first wolves to set foot in Yellowstone since 1926. In May of this year, when I visited Yellowstone, Rick McIntyre took me to the exact site where the last wolf was hunted down and killed back then. Rick shared with me the story of how Yellowstone Park Rangers made that final kill, And how nearly 70 years later, that mistake was finally addressed.
0: If we were to go back a few centuries, the gray wolf species, except for human beings, was the most widespread large mammal species in the world. They were a very, very successful species for tens of thousands of years. So if you visualize a map of the world, all of Europe and Asia, all of North America from the Arctic Ocean down to southern Mexico. That was all gray wolf habitat. So they also lived in parts of northern Africa, but not too much in the southern hemisphere. So uh, very widespread, very successful species. Probably their only competition were, were human beings who weren't as widespread originally during that period. And we've already talked about how Wolf social behavior and human social behavior are so similar, meaning we both live in family groups. We both species work together as as teammates. And but, you know, sometimes in life, it's things that are kind of the closest to you that sometimes you have uh, the biggest rivalry with. And so there's so much to say and why humans began to turn against wolves and began to try to kill them off. However, Native Americans had exactly the opposite uh, point of view. They they saw them as brothers in the hunt and had great respect from them and sought to learn from them. But getting back to Yellowstone, it, it's a very sad story. Yellowstone was the first national park created in the world in 1872. But the early park rangers, they really had no professional training. And they, along with pretty much everyone else in the country in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, believed by that time that wolves were no good and they deserved to all be exterminated. So if I had been a ranger in Yellowstone in the late 1800s on into the early 1900s, I would have assigned the, the job of killing off wolves in my district. And um, just today, a few hours ago, I was at the spot in Yellowstone where back in 1926, a bison died. The local rangers encircled that Dead bison with wolf traps. They came out the next morning. There were two wolves that were caught in the traps. They were frantically trying to yank their paws out of it. The rangers shot them. And those were the last two native wolves of Yellowstone. So it was actually park rangers that killed them. That, that's about oh, 13 miles from where I'm speaking from right now. And they thought that they had done a good deed. They probably got a, a raise, a recognition, a certificate, something like that, a pad on the back. They thought they were doing the right thing. And then it took decades for the Park Service to realize that it had been the worst imaginable thing to kill off a native species. We could talk for hours about the bad impacts that happened in Yellowstone after the the apex predator was killed off. Probably most of your listeners would be able to have a basic understanding of that anyway. So for the Park Service, which is part of the U.S. Department of Interior, it was a no-brainer in the 90s to realize that we had to make up for that terrible mistake by bringing back a native animal to Yellowstone that were the same species as the original ones. It was a risky proposition to do it, but it was a tremendous success. And so now wolves in the northern Rocky Mountain states have considered to be fully recovered from their endangered species status. So it's, it's one of the, the great wildlife stories in the history of the world.
1: today. There are an estimated 90 to 110 wolves in Yellowstone, a number that fluctuates a bit year to year and was estimated to be 123 at the end of 2020. Back in 1995, after a couple months in acclimation pens, the wolves were fully released and would form the Crystal Creek and Rose Creek Packs, the first two packs back in Yellowstone in 70 years. Now, Yellowstone had unique advantages when it came to reintroduction. The big advantage was a lack of ranching and livestock, since those practices are forbidden in the park. Another is a strong number of natural prey and expansive territory available. Yellowstone is huge. If you haven't been there, in which case, please, please, please go, it's remarkable. The park is nearly 3,500 square miles large. That's larger than the states of Rhode Island and Delaware combined. Now there's challenges too. Over 4 million people visit Yellowstone every year. How would the wolves acclimate to such frequent potential for contact with humans? There are also no hard borders on Yellowstone. So what would happen if wolves ventured beyond the park boundaries into Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming? How would wolves returning after 70 years impact the ecosystem? A lot had to go right to make this a success. One of the most important aspects up front was ensuring the wolves recognized this as their home. But this was really never
0: exactly done before. So if if your listeners aren't maybe familiar with what the plan was with getting, once the wolves arrived, there were, there were three packs the first year, the second year, four packs, all caught, wild wolves caught in Canada. They tried to get intact wolf packs, wolf families that were used to staying together and sticking together. So wolves have a homing instinct like dogs do. So it was realized that if we captured, let's say a family of six wolves in Canada, drove them down here and just let them out from their cages right away in Yellowstone, their homing instinct would cause them to start moving back to the North. And where we wanted the first wolf packs to get established was near the Northern border of the park. That was the best habitat, their best chance to be successful. So within a day or even a half a day, those early wolves, if they had been let go right away, they would have crossed the northern border of Yellowstone, and the whole point of the reintroduction would have been lost to get them reestablished inside the park. So that's why we had what were called acclimation pens. So we talked about Wolf 8. His family was one of the first ones brought down, the Crystal Creek Pack. So they were put, he and his parents and his three siblings, a total of six wolves, They were put in an acclimation pen. It was less than an acre in size, a circular pen, chain link fencing. They were kept there and there for two months. A couple of times a week, animals that had been hit in collisions on the road, parts of their carcasses were put in to feed them, but there was very minimal contact with people. And then when they were released two months later, which was almost exactly 26 years ago now, we just passed the anniversary, we hoped that that acclimation would cause them to think of Yellowstone as their new home. So it'd be like with with you and your canine friend, if you moved to a, a new house, after a while, she would understand, okay, this is where we live. So if she got lost, if she got kidnapped, hopefully she'd have the ability to find the new home as opposed to going back to the old home. And the short explanation of what happened with the wolves was that that plan worked, that the Crystal Creek wolves pretty much stayed close to where they were released. There were some glitches here and there, but that was the, the main impact of that of that finding of the way that they were kept in pens. So to me, that was an example. There, there, there were different people, men and women, they were involved in the planning and then the carrying out of the, the plans and then what was going on after the wolves were released that in many cases, there were so many different people that had to make so many decisions, some of them in moments of crisis. And it was almost like every time the person made the right decision. And if any of those decisions had gone the other way, we wouldn't be talking today because it may have never worked. So it was almost like a You have made up historical story where the main characters always did the right thing at the right moment. And there was at the end of the book, a happy ending.
1: Looking back now, 25 years, there's a lot to reflect on here. Human conflict has been an issue at times, not in a direct way, but in terms of a number of car and traffic deaths that do kill Yellowstone Wolves each year. Park officials have and continue to work on ways to steer packs away from the roadways. But this is also a reason nobody, not even the most experienced of wolf researchers such as Rick himself, ever gets within a half mile of wolves, to keep them away from people and avoiding any normalization of human contact. As for their impact on prey populations, well, let's start here on many of the surprisingly awesome impacts wolves have had on Yellowstone.
0: It was established that there were way too many elk uh, on the land. That's why they were doing so much damage. So there was one study done in the 60s that where plant experts said that the amount of vegetation we have in this northern section of Yellowstone where I'm based can support about 6,000 elk without doing any damage to the plants. Well, before the wolves were brought in, the population of elk got up to over 20,000. And so that's why all those problems we're having. And I'm not up to date on the current estimate of, of elk in, the, in that section of the park. But I, I, I think in, in recent years, the, the estimates have been in the neighborhood of six, seven, eight thousand. In other words, pretty much exactly what you would want for the carrying
1: capacity.
0: So it, it's worked out really perfectly for the ecosystem and, and for the plant communities.
1: Wolves have helped stabilize elk populations as well as strengthen the gene pool. They often feed on the weak and sick elk, especially in years where elk are abundant, and this in turn weeds out those elk from reproducing. This way, elk become stronger and more resilient to changing conditions, something critical for the species entering more turbulent years of change ahead due to the climate crisis. When the wolves arrived in 1995, elk were extremely overpopulated, which is what happens when an ecosystem loses its apex predator. Overpopulations of prey species bring their own breed of negative impacts, particularly on vegetation.
0: I was in a perfect situation to witness that. So we we just talked about the Crystal Creek walls and how they were released from a pen site right at Crystal Creek. So in the early years of the reintroduction, I was asked to do nature walks where I would take park visitors to that acclimation site, which was left up for a few years. And then later they took it down, but I would still take them up to the site. So I and people flocked to it. I, I had as many as 125 people going along with me hikes so I would take them up when the pen was still up there they could go in the pen they could experience it when the pen was down we could still go in and see the bones that the walls had chewed on and things like that so it was just a great place to tell the story of the reintroduction it was kind of like taking people to Plymouth Rock or any like great historic site in human history so it it was just really enjoyable and, and I think a peak life experience for those people but what I, what I really wanna get into is in the, the first year or so when I did that, on the way, we would stop where we had some very old tall aspen trees that were maybe 150, 200 years old. And they were really getting to um, be at the very end of their life cycle. Many of them had already died, others had a rotten section of their upper branches. But more importantly, I would point out under those aspen groves that if, if you don't know, aspens reproduce through shoots that come up from the root systems rather than seeds. That's the normal way they reproduce. So I would show my the people on my hike literally tens of thousands of aspen shoots coming up from the root systems of those ancient trees. And every single one of those shoots had been browsed to death by elk because we had such an overpopulation of elk, they were desperate for any kind of food. They would find those shoots, they were nutritious for them, and they would literally eat every one. So with the older trees dying and being decrepit, rotting away, there was a huge concern in Yellowstone that they would lose those aspen foods, which are a very important food for wildlife. And then I'm not sure how long it took, it was within just a couple of years When I would take in new groups of hikers up there, I would take them to exactly the same place where every one of those thousands of shoots had been roused to death. And now almost all of them were surviving. And if I was to take you up there right now, 26 years after those Crystal Creek wolves had been released, now those shoots that started to grow a few years after the wolves were released are maybe 30 feet tall. And it's so thick that you can hardly move through them. It would be like going through a bamboo forest in Southeast Asia. So it's a very dramatic proof of the impact that the wolves have had on it. And so that's just one example of the impact that the wolves have
1: had. And wait, there's more. Okay, I always wanted to use that cheesy line from TV commercials, but, but seriously, there, there's more. Wolves quite literally had a positive impact on, well, everything. From trees, to songbirds, to beavers, to the rivers themselves. This is what biologists call a trophic cascade. The changes that take place across an entire ecosystem top-down when an apex predator is reintroduced. There's a great video from Sustainable Human, which I'll link to in the podcast notes, that describes this in detail. And since the only thing better than hearing about awesome things that wildlife do is hearing about awesome things that wildlife do from a narrator with a British accent. I'm gonna play an excerpt of the audio from that video.
5: In 1995. Now, we all know that wolves kill various species of animals, but perhaps we're slightly less aware that they give life to many others. before the wolves turned up, they'd been absent for 70 years, that the numbers of deer, because there was nothing to hunt them, had built up and built up in the Yellowstone Park. And despite efforts by humans to control them, they'd managed to reduce much of the vegetation there to almost nothing. They'd just grazed it away. But as soon as the wolves arrived, even though they were few in number, they started to have the most remarkable effects. First, of course, they killed some of the deer, but that wasn't the major thing. Much more significantly, they radically changed the behaviour of the deer. The deer started avoiding certain parts of the park, the places where they could be trapped most easily, particularly the valleys and the gorges. And immediately, those places started to regenerate. In some areas, the height of the trees quintupled in just six years. Bare valley sides quickly became forests of aspen and willow and cottonwood. And as soon as that happened, the birds started moving in. The number of songbirds, of migratory birds, started to increase greatly. The number of beavers started to increase because beavers like to, to eat the trees. And beavers, like wolves, are ecosystem engineers. They create niches for other species. And the dams they built in the rivers provided habitats for otters and muskrats and ducks and fish and reptiles and amphibians. The wolves killed coyotes here's where it gets really interesting. The wolves changed the behaviour of the rivers. They began to meander less, there was less erosion, the channels narrowed, more pools formed, more riffle sections, all of which were great for wildlife habitats. The rivers changed in response to the wolves. And the reason was that the regenerating forests stabilised the banks so that they collapsed less often, so that the rivers became more fixed in their course. Similarly, by driving the deer out of some places and the vegetation recovering on the valley sides, there was a soil erosion because the vegetation stabilized that as well. So the wolves, small in number, transformed not just the ecosystem of the Yellowstone National Park, this huge area of land, but also its physical geography. You know, it's really hard
1: to learn about these things and know that there are still so many people out there, so many people in powerful positions who remain ignorant on the actual role wolves play and continue to fight to eradicate them. As if wolves needed to showcase any more of their benefit, which they don't, but just because they're awesome, they had a positive impact on the local economy at Yellowstone as well. One of the amazing
0: things that was unexpected about Yellowstone is the impact that it had on the local economy. I can go into detail if you want, but based on an economic study that was done a few years ago, we, we feel right now having walls back in Yellowstone is generating probably something like $65 million for the local economy. A lot of my friends in this area have jobs and, and you yeah, $65 million a year. And that would be motel owners, restaurant owners, having extra customers that are coming here to see the walls. But a big, big factor that no one ever expected was what I'm going to call wolf tourism, because we didn't think that the wolves would be very visible, but they are. So today, when I was out, hundreds of people saw the wolves, and many of them had paid quite a bit of money to be guided by local wildlife experts. So many of my friends, that's how they earn their living. Their job is to be um, a wildlife guide. And they're making very good money at this. Many of them have started their own companies. And I won't quote what some of the fees are, but it's good money and the tipping is good. So, you know, for anyone in the world, imagine coming to Yellowstone. Your dream is to see a wolf. You want to guarantee it. And so you can do that by contacting one of these companies and arranging to to go out with them. And so it's just been a tremendous boon for the economy here. And that's really turned around a lot of attitudes toward wolves because in the past, most of the arguments against wolves has been kind of financial arguments. So nowadays, there are many people that if there's some kind of a draconian bill in the state to kill more wolves, what actually happens is people, when they come to testify and say that you know, they may lose their livelihood if too many wolves are being killed. So it's just a fascinating development that no one ever expected or predicted.
1: Now, to be clear, some of the benefits we've walked through here are unique to Yellowstone in ways that would be harder to come by in other areas, such as the Hia National Forest. That, of course, is because you have a lot of private land, land being used for livestock and farming, smaller areas for recovery, and more strained prey species. Still, The success in Yellowstone should be celebrated.
0: Well, I've always been an optimistic person. I always expect that things are going to work out. And boy, that's exactly what happened here. So, to tell this story that has such a a sad beginning component that Yellowstone, the world's first national park, instructed the early rangers to deliberately exterminate a, a native predator, the wolf. And then decades later, for the modern rangers to figure out a way to rectify that terrible mistake and to have wolves back on the landscape fulfilling their original purpose and function here. It's such a great story to the people worldwide to hear such a great story of hope and optimism. And then for folks to be able to visit Yellowstone and know a little bit about that story and that history and have a pretty good chance of seeing the descendants of those original wolves it's a it's a life changing experience. And I, I've helped maybe something like 100,000 people see woes here over the years. And you can just see the emotion in their faces, people crying, sobbing, wanting to hug the nearest government official, which oftentimes was me. That doesn't happen too much these days if you're a government bureaucrat. So I, I think that's the point that I'd like to emphasize. It's a story of hope, of optimism that there are ways that we can make up for terrible mistakes in the past. There is hope for the future. There is hope that we can make up for terrible things that have been done in the
1: past. Hope and optimism are prerequisites for solving really hard problems and fostering meaningful change. What happened in Yellowstone should inspire us of what's possible and remind us that wolves have had... What happened in Yellowstone should inspire us of what's possible and remind us that wolves have a natural and important place in their ecosystem. Our efforts should be on finding a way to coexist together in balance, not getting them out of the way due to our historically distorted view of progress. For decades and decades, we've lived on a theory of macroeconomics that discards environmental and social factors as externalities, costs which never get accounted for or put into the model. And this has driven us to grow and grow and grow in such a way that has pushed our natural world to the brink, and with it, our own livelihoods. The environment is not an externality. Native American communities and their cultures are not externalities. Wolves are not externalities. We can learn from both the failures of the Fish and Wildlife Service in the Southwest and the success of the team in Yellowstone in creating a game plan for wolves and humans to thrive together to live alongside one another as we were designed to do. Michael and I spoke several times during the making of this podcast, but I looked back at our initial discussion where he left me with some powerful moving words that I want to close this episode with.
2: There's a tremendous number of young people in the United States, as well as people of all ages and beyond our borders throughout the world who are realizing that the natural balance is being broken that our place in the natural world, that we're becoming alienated from the natural world. And we're, we are destroying that which sustains us, sustains us physically and sustains us spiritually. And in, in so many ways that we have taken for granted and that, that we're losing and who are not willing, you know, so many people all over who are not willing to accept this loss and who are wondering why, why should we do things in the past? If they're bringing, you know, the way we they were done in the past, if they're you know, if they're bringing us real misery in so many ways, you mentioned the pandemic. You mentioned the extreme weather, which obviously has you know from from floods, to forest fires, to droughts, to to so many of the ways that our lives are being transformed. As indeed, wildlife and and natu- native plants are 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 losing ground as well. People are not willing to accept that, and and there's a real struggle. And I think you know. I think that people are, you know, certainly there's there's those who feel like feel threatened by the kind of changes that need to take place, but I do think we're on the brink of, of of really as a society, and and you know, I don't, I can't speak globally, but I do think there's a lot of people globally who want, are moving towards this direction of, of trying to restore natural balances, trying to try to trying to have a very different, fundamentally different relationship with the natural world and human societies and it's you know we've lost a lot and and some losses are cannot be regained you know the carbon the greenhouse gases overall that are in the atmosphere today are going to be affecting the weather in 20 years much less the ones that were the gases that we are going to be putting into the the atmosphere tomorrow mm. So that's not to minimize that there are losses that are irremediable, but there's still a huge amount still to be protected and conserved and and restored as well. And there's a real drive for that. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of ingenious work being done to see how human needs can be met. And, And environmental justice, not just the needs of those of us who are being inconvenienced in the very rich parts of the world. But but people who have been, you know, who have been on the, the short end of all the transformations from the very beginning yep. uh, and are facing increasingly dire situations as well. So there is a drive to tr- and, and a lot of ingenuity to try and try and meet human needs, repair the the ecological damage and repair the relation, the human relationship with the natural world. And I I I am inspired by that. Uh, there's going to be a lot of losses but i think there's a lot that we can still gain and a lot that we can still do and will do and i think we can look back at times in history when you know both both more broadly globally but also here in the united states when people have risen to the to to the emergencies that they have faced and obviously the analogies that we often hear about are how how our societies transformed during wartime and those are those are real transformations and they were uh, in many cases, noble transformations. But but we also, you know, we, we see in the Great Depression, which was also very much of an, uh, an ecological collapse along with an economic collapse, particularly in the arid Western United States. We saw new institutions. We saw, in some cases, new ethics being born. And there's no reason to believe that we can't do it now, not notwithstanding this sclerosis, of our politics, and in in some ways, the, uh, the difficulty of getting anything done. I think we can.
1: Which brings us to the fourth and final episode in our series. Next week, we dive into the torrid battleground of 2021 following the federal delisting of wolves. What is happening in states that are returning to extermination? What is happening in states that are holding their ground on recovery? Which side will prevail? And what can we do to ensure it's the right one? the one that protects wolves and protects those living off the land, including ranchers, so long as they shift from a mindset of pure growth and scale to one of sustainably providing for their families and communities in harmony with the natural world around them. All right, thanks for listening to episode three. Thanks for supporting this series. Thanks for supporting SaveOurWolves.org. And thank you for fighting to protect wolves. We'll see you in episode four.